Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. On with the show. Hi everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we uncover the remnants of history every day. The day was February 24th, 1803. The landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, William Marbury versus James Madison, Secretary of the State, was decided. The decision established judicial review, or the idea that the actions of the executive and legislative branches of government are subject to review by the judiciary. It also ruled that the Supreme Court had the power to determine if those actions were consistent with the Constitution. And if they were not consistent, then the court could declare them void. Many state courts already exercised judicial review by the time Marbury versus Madison was decided. And there had already been talk of giving this power to the federal courts. But this case helped establish the judiciary as equal to the executive and legislative branches in power. And the decision established the Constitution as the supreme law of the land, with the Supreme Court as the ultimate authority for interpreting it. The presidential election of 1800 had been a dramatic one. Democratic Republican Thomas Jefferson narrowly beat incumbent President John Adams, who was a Federalist. Democratic Republicans were also set to become the majority party in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. So as Adams was on his way out, he and Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1801. The act created a bunch of new judicial offices, and Adams proceeded to pack those offices with Federalists in what appeared to be a last-ditch attempt to strengthen Federalist power and throw Jefferson for a loop. Adams appointed 16 new circuit judges and 42 new justices of the peace, including William Marbury. The Senate approved the so-called midnight appointees, and Adams signed a slew of commissions for the new judges. Secretary of State John Marshall, who had been appointed Chief Justice, notarized the appointments. The kicker is, several of those commissions weren't delivered before the presidential transition, and the remaining appointments weren't valid until they were delivered by the new Secretary of State, James Madison. And once President Jefferson took office on March 4, 1801, he told Madison not to deliver the commissions. William Marbury, who had been appointed a Justice of the Peace in the District of Columbia, was one of those leftover appointees. So Marbury petitioned the Supreme Court to get Madison to deliver the commissions, asking the court for a writ of mandamus, forcing delivery of the commissions. A writ of mandamus is an order from a court to a public agency or governmental body that commands that entity to perform an act required by law that it has refused or neglected to do. The court did rule that Jefferson and Madison were in the wrong for refusing to deliver the commission, but it also didn't make Madison hand over the commission. The court claimed that it did not have jurisdiction in the case, and it could not issue the writ, as the Judiciary Act of 1789 that had authorized the court to do so was unconstitutional and therefore void. 
The Judiciary Act of 1789, Chief Justice John Marshall pointed out, extended judiciary power beyond that given in Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution. Chief Justice John Marshall wrote the unanimous opinion. In it, he said the following. It is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must, of necessity, expound and interpret that rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the court must decide on the operation of each. So, Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 was void, and Marbury didn't get his seat as Justice of the Peace in the District of Columbia. The judiciary's job was to uphold the Constitution, the decision said. Thus, the Supreme Court gained the ability to declare a law unconstitutional, and judicial review was born. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TDIHC Podcast. Thanks for joining me on this trip through time. See you here in the exact same spot tomorrow. Hey, I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast that proves history is always happening. The day was February 24th, 1864. Rebecca Lee Crumpler became the first Black woman in the U.S. to earn an M.D. or Doctor of Medicine. Crumpler was born in 1831 in Delaware to free Black parents, Absalom Davis and Matilda Weber Davis. She grew up in Pennsylvania, where her aunt raised her. Her aunt spent a lot of time caring for people with illnesses, which may have influenced Rebecca's desire to go into medicine. By 1852, Rebecca moved to Charlestown, Massachusetts, where she worked as a nurse. There weren't any formal schools for nursing in the U.S. at the time, so she studied on her own. She assisted local physicians and cared for patients when doctors were absent. By this time, Elizabeth Blackwell had already become the first woman in the U.S. to get an M.D. from a medical school. And Crumpler knew about the New England Female Medical College, which was founded in 1848 in Boston. The school was the first in the U.S. to train women in medicine. Rebecca asked the physicians she worked for to write letters of recommendation for her application to the college. She was admitted to the school and began her studies there in 1860. At this time, around 300 women had medical degrees in the U.S., out of more than 50,000 physicians in the country. Medical degrees were largely unnecessary to become a physician, since most states had no licensing requirements. Though hundreds of women got degrees after Elizabeth Blackwell, none of them were Black. It's likely that Crumpler went to medical school to get better at nursing, rather than to become a physician. Little is known about the challenges that she faced to get into the school and what she went through while enrolled. For years, scholars gave the title of first woman to get an MD to Rebecca Cole. She got her degree from the Woman's Medical College of Pennsylvania in 1867. There's a good chance that Crumpler herself was unaware of her status as the first Black woman to get an MD in the States. 
but on February 24th, 1864, she and two of her classmates, Mary Lockwood Allen and Elizabeth Kimball, took their final oral exams. The faculty voted to recommend the three of them to the Board of Trustees, even though they stated that Crumpler had, quote, deficiencies, and they hesitated to recommend her. On March 1st, Crumpler got her Doctress of Medicine degree. Around the time that she graduated, she married a man named Arthur Crumpler. She practiced in Boston for a short time and then pursued additional training at an unknown place. At the end of the Civil War, she moved to Richmond, Virginia, a place that she considered a, quote, proper field for real missionary work and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. She worked with the Freedmen's Bureau to care for formerly enslaved and other Black people. Black physicians experienced a lot of racism in the post-war South, and there's evidence that Crumpler herself was at the receiving end of that hate. Howard University College of Medicine, the first historically Black medical school, was founded in 1868. By 1869, Crumpler had gone back to Boston. Around a decade later, she and her husband had moved to Hyde Park, Massachusetts. She was no longer in active medical practice by this time, but in 1883, she published the text, A Book of Medical Discourses. The New England Female Medical College did not graduate another Black woman before it closed in 1873. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you're hungry for more history, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. We also accept electronic letters at thisday at iheartmedia.com. We're here every day, so you know where to find us. Bye. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.